and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Catherine Scanlon about her novel, Kick the Latch. Yeah, I really loved this book. I really loved it in a way that I, in some ways, like didn't anticipate loving it. I have little to no experience with horses and not so much interest in horse racing. There's not an immediate like pull there in terms of subject matter. And yet it was like an incredibly moving, short, but like poignant, beautiful book. I agree. Yeah. I was, I was so excited after reading this, I was pushing it on various people I know because I thought that they would enjoy it. And it was, it was a kind of a profound experience yeah, um, as a novel. Yeah. It's just really like kind of sucks you right, right in the gut. Cause it's so fast paced and, and boiled down and, and that it has that minimalist style that I'm, I'm really drawn to. And also the story itself is, is insane. Incredible. This, this woman, Sonia, who's the protagonist and also based on, on the life of a real person is, is just has had such an incredible life. Yeah. We get to this in the interview, but for listeners who are unaware, the novel is drawn from interviews that Catherine did with this woman, Sonia, who's a real life person. The novel is very much written by Catherine, but Sonia is is a person in the world and she is a very, very compelling character. Yeah. Should we get to, to the conversation? Yeah, let's do it. happy to be speaking with the writer Catherine Scanlon today. Catherine Scanlon is the author of the story collection The Dominant Animal and the book Og Nine Fog, which reimagines and reworks a found diary. Her writing has appeared in places such as Granta, Noon, Paris Review, Art Forum, and Harper's, and she lives in Los Angeles. She joins us to discuss her new book, the novel Kick the Latch, a series of taut, electrifying vignettes based on real-life interviews. The book narrates the life of Sonia, a horse trainer in rural Iowa who enters the world of competitive racing while still in high school. Sonia's experiences at the racetrack are by turns exultant and brutal. They take place in an atmosphere in which both human and animal are often pushed to the edge of their lives in the name of winning it all. But Sonia's grit, devotion, and perseverance serve to counter the exceptional details of her life and work. In her, Scanlon crafts a uniquely humane and gripping voice that reveals itself in small details, idiosyncratic phrases, and deep tenderness. Welcome, Catherine, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Catherine, so this book is about, it's about this woman, Sonia, and her life. And I was wondering, and we'll get to the specifics in the interview, obviously, but I was wondering how you came to this story. So I came to this story because Sonia was someone that my parents knew. And she sets up at flea markets that my parents are sometimes set up at. And so they sort of got friendly. And my mom especially got to be friends with Sonia. And every time she saw her, Sonia would be telling her all these stories about her life. And my mom was just sort of fascinated and thought that I would really like to talk to her too. And so it just sort of happened that way that I... One of the times that I went to Iowa to visit my family, I arranged it so that 
I could also meet with Sonia when she was set up at a flea market that my father was also set up at. And so that's the first time that I talked to her and recorded her. I recorded that first conversation that we had together. I'm curious, working with someone's real life story in the afterward, you say that this is a work of fiction, mm-hmm. but yet you were shaping someone's real life story in part for it. And I know that you've done that in your first book as well, August 9th, Fog. Fog 9th, Fog, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I wonder how you go about that process, how different it is for you from writing just pure fiction, how it feels to somewhat be accountable to another person, to a real life, if there are any ethics of it that are different from you than just writing stories that come completely from you, or even if you draw those distinctions at all. Maybe they're meaningless, I don't know. Well, first I would say that a lot of my fiction, like a lot of my stories that I write are sort of based on a similar method. Like they're based on just sort of listening to people and making notes and sort of committing things to memory and then going back and sort of rewriting them according to my whims. And I keep a notebook for that purpose. But I had never done anything like this where I recorded someone and then worked from the transcripts. That part was different. And then, yeah, also obviously Sonia is a living person. And so I worked with her throughout the process of writing the book to make sure that she was okay with what I was doing and that she approved Mm. of it. And sort of like every step of the way, you know, was like showing her what I was doing, checking with her, getting her approval. I wouldn't have written this book like if she obviously hadn't been okay with that. (laughs) How much did her life and the life of the character of the book diverge? I mean, did you invent a lot that's in the story? I wouldn't say that I invented a lot. There are things that I did invent, but they're mostly fairly small things and things that were sort of I did in service to the novel or in service to fiction, what I thought, sort of shaping it and the way that I organized the material. And then also, sometimes I was sort of rewriting things, but I also, because this was a a real person and her life that she was telling me about, I really wanted to be faithful to that to a certain degree and to sort of like honor that. And so I didn't want to invent a lot of things. And I also just think I don't know how interested I am in, you know, sort of inventing a lot of things. And I think that I really like pulling things from real life as much as I can. How soon after you met her did you sort of think this might be a book or this, I might pull this together into my own story? Actually, pretty much right after that first conversation. I mean, I went into it with not really any idea or expectations of anything, but I I'd had these conversations with my mother and just based on the things that she had told me, I was like, wow, I just would like to talk to this person. You know, I just would like to hear her talk about these things. And, but I did go into it and just asked her if I could record her and just said that I'd like her to just talk to me about whatever she would like to talk to me about if she was comfortable with that. And, and I didn't have any preconceived notions, but then as soon as we finished that conversation, I felt like, I had an idea of the shape of the book, the way that I would do it, which is fairly close to what it ended up being. She's 
one of the grittiest characters I've read in a long time, just kind of by the nature of her work, you know, working with horses, working with animals in this really high stakes environment where, you know, riders are getting injured, the animals are getting injured, but also from the first story or like from the second story or third story, you also have the sense of her being someone who has an incredible amount of permissiveness and tenderness, even as she's describing her childhood and this old drunk man in the neighborhood who they would invite into their home to sleep off his drunkenness or their neighbor, Bicycle Jenny, who's living like a very wild life in the pit of a burned house and with all these chihuahuas who they would allow to come into their house and get water. I thought that combination, and maybe it's not at all antithetical, was just something incredibly compelling about her. Yeah, I agree. And I really wanted to sort of amplify those things or make sure that those qualities, which are real qualities of Sonia's, you know, I would say that they came through in the book. Yeah, she's just a very interesting person and very open-hearted, I would say. So she works with horses and she almost immediately dives headfirst into this race tracking life that is genuinely sounds brutal, but is a lifelong passion of hers. I'm curious about how, I can't imagine that you knew so much about it going into talking to her, but I'm curious about how much you sort of, if you treat this at all like a journalistic assignment, if you also do sort of research on your own in terms of finding out more about the environment that she was in, more about the people that she's talking about, more about the sort of life that she led from not just herself, but from other sources. I did a little bit of that. But it was mostly certain terms that she used, like specific terms for products that they would use or methods that they would use on the horses just to make sure that I was getting things right. And I also double-checked some things with her. And then also one of the times I sent her my drafts, you know, there were a few things that I had misunderstood or had gotten wrong in that vein that she corrected me on. But for the most part, I didn't really do a lot of that because I actually grew up around horses. And so I think that that was part of the reason that I was so interested in her and in listening to her. And I think it's one of the reasons that my mother was interested in listening to her because I think the all three of us um, had kind of like a similar, possibly sort of like early experience with horses, with being a young girl. And I had a horse when I was a kid and So a lot of the things that she was telling me, they were things that I hadn't thought about in a long time, but they were things that I, once she was talking about them, I was remembering and I was sort of, you know, having these sense memories of what it feels like to be around horses and what it means to care for them and sort of like get them to trust you and yeah, all of those sorts of things. What was your experience with horses when you were little? My mom was just a great rider and she had a horse that she rode when she was pregnant with me and put me up on him pretty quickly after I was born. And she taught me to ride. And I supposedly was just kind of a horse crazy kid and then got my own horse when I was in second grade, I think, and then spent the next however many years with him, spent, you know, a lot of my time with him. 
and did some sort of like racing events at the local fairs and stuff with him and and just had like a really wonderful <laughs> time. What was his name? His name was Bucky. <laughs> and did you have him for a long time? Yeah, I did. He was sort of a in between a pony and a horse. He was like a large pony or a small horse. So it got to be where when I was sort of in like later high school, I was getting a little bit tall for him. So we actually gave him to my cousins who were younger and then they had him for years. And then after that, they gave him to this farm family with tons of kids and they all learned to ride on him. So he had kind of a charmed life for a horse. He had a very long, long life after I left or after he left me. (laughs) Just for people who haven't read the book, I was wondering the language, you know, the specific horse racing language is something, of course, that is so rich about it. I was wondering if there were any phrases that Sonia used that really stuck out to you as like mind-blowingly amazing that, you know, if you had a favorite of some of the terminology, like personally, mine was how they called horses' legs wheels. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. If there were any others that you were like, oh, this is gold. <laughs> well, I kind of felt like that about all of it. I mean, I just, that was really one of the things that I was so compelled by is this very particular language that she was using and this kind of vernacular of the racetrack that I just am really interested in in that sort of thing. And like, and I sort of like that feeling of hearing these things and maybe not necessarily quite understanding what it is, but I can kind of guess what she's talking about. And Another one at the end of the book is when they have won a race, instead of saying we won, they say we win, we win, Uh we win. I thought that was amazing too. I wanted to also ask, so you grew up with horses and caring for horses. It seems like there's a difference between, you know, casually having a horse. I mean, not that it's casual, but then at the level that Sonia was was at in terms Mm -hmm. of the intensity of racing and the extremity on horses' bodies and this kind of tension in the book, I think, between the level of care, the level of commitment of horse trainers, and then the fact that they're doing something possibly very exploitative to these horses and that the strain on horses' bodies of racing is insane. And that, you know, Sonia describes a race, a horse's leg will break right off. Was that attention that you wanted to mind? How did you feel about it writing this? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that horse racing was also something that was sort of in my life from an early age because my father owned some racehorses when I was a kid. And I have like a an early memory of watching them outside the track because I couldn't go in because I didn't let children in there. But, you know, very similar to Sonia's experience of waiting outside the track to watch the horses. And then we would go to like Arlington Park outside of Chicago to watch the races there when I was a kid. And I just always loved it. But I know about all of these sort of cruelties that happen in horse racing and So I think that another reason I wanted to write this book is just that tension of being very interested in this world and hearing, you know, from someone who obviously cares really deeply about these animals, these horses, and then also, I guess, sort of reconciling my own interest in it. 
and like the sort of like romantic aspect of horse racing. Did your father have the horses throughout your life? No, it was kind of only early on that he had those. At one point, I remember we took in a retired racehorse that I think that someone, a friend of his, you know, it was like one of his horses and the horse couldn't race anymore. So they were just trying to find a home for him where he could live out his days. But he and my horse didn't get along very well. So he didn't stick around very long after that. There's a sense, and maybe this is just personal for me as like a a city kid who has like barely seen a horse when not in like underneath a policeman, that there's something about Sonia and the life that she led and the deep connection with horses that is almost like a relic of a different world or of a different time. And almost that she's, I mean, you know, she's born in the 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's not ancient by any means. No, no. But I wonder if you had that sense that you were encountering a person who had sort of interacted with a world that is somewhat gone by, or is it just my sheer like geographical separation from a world that is very much still in place? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like that track that where she went first, you know, as a young person is long gone. I'm guessing that a lot of the other tracks that she worked on are gone. And horse racing definitely is sort of, I was just talking to someone about this last night and just thinking about how at one time horse racing was just such a hugely popular diversion and there were tracks everywhere and they would be full, you know, all of the time. And one of the reasons was because that was like one of the only legal forms of gambling. And now, you know, you can gamble on your phone. And I think that the issues of the the health of the horses probably has something to do with it as well. Yeah. So I think in a certain sense, it is, it very well might be disappearing, but I also would say that I think it probably definitely still exists in some places. It's maybe just a little less common. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Catherine Scanlon, author of Kick the Latch. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Wa Shu back on the line with us today. Wa is the author most recently of the memoir Stay True, and he joins us now for this week's book recommendation. So Wa, what book are you recommending? I'm going to recommend a novel by Maxine Hong Kingston called Tripmaster Monkey. Maxine Hong Kingston is one of my favorite authors. When I was writing my own book, I'm not like a voracious reader of memoirs, even though I, I just wrote one. <laughs> but Something that always appealed to me about Maxine's work is how she sort of plays with autobiographical writing in a way that, you know, tells you something about her and her generation, but also carves out space for the reader to enter into the story and maybe Mm. tell their own. Like, I think that's what makes Woman Warrior, her most famous book, so powerful, that it's a story rooted in her own time and her own family, but it also carves out the space for you to talk your own story. Tripmaster Monkey is a book set in the 1960s at Berkeley. So naturally, as a Berkeley alum, I was drawn to it. It's about a sort of insufferable Chinese-American dreamer. So naturally, I was also very drawn to it, um, who is essentially trying to 
write a play that would include everyone he's ever met in his life. You know, so every person mm. he's friends with, women he has crushes on, coworkers, people he runs into on the bus, everyone has a part to play in this play. And it's this beautiful utopian project he's come up with. And the point of the play is that they will stop the Vietnam War, you know, by putting on this production that is just that is essentially enacting community, enacting a new nation. And I love the book so much. Like there's a 50 page long acid trip. Um, there's all sorts of wonderful passages about just what it means to stay up all night with your friends, scheming and plotting and dreaming. And it's a book that really captures these sentiments of kind of shared visions and shared dreams that I really aspired toward when I was working on my own book. So even though it's not a memoir, it feels as though it sort of offers you a vision for kind of like how you would want to live your own life and how you'd want to bring other people with you. And that's why I love this book so much. That sounds really wonderful. Can you give us the full title and author one more time? Sure. It's called Tripmaster Monkey, His Fake Book by Maxine Hong Kingston. Thank you so much. That's a great recommendation. We've been speaking with Hua Xu, author most recently of the memoir, Stay True. You're listening to the LARP Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Catherine Scanlon, author of Kick the Latch. I think something else about her that's so almost aspirational is that she's so dedicated to her work and she's so enthralled in horses and horse racing that it's like that's the only thing she cares about. There's this great line that I'm going to butcher, but where you say, you don't hear about the world news unless something major happens because you're in your own world and you have enough news, mm-hmm. is what she says. So there's almost like, you know, I think it's easily relatable to anyone who becomes obsessed with anything. She's so obsessed with what she does and it's so all-consuming. You could almost kind of put in a different profession and it would have almost the same quality, even writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that another thing that drew you to the story or is that even something you could identify with? Yeah, I think both. Yeah, for sure. I really like to sort of hone in on things and (laughs) get a little bit obsessive about them. And that's, you know, definitely what I did when I was writing this book. And I think I also just, yeah, admire that character trait in other people, just this kind of devotion to what they want to do. You know, it strikes me there's even this moment when she's really young, she's raped working with horses. Someone sneaks in in the middle of the night and she decides not to tell her family because she knows that if she did, they would make her leave and she doesn't want to. And that element of the thing matters more than anything else in the world, almost maybe to um, traumatic ends or it's a saving grace. I don't know if what you think in this story, what it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I can comment on that, um, whether it's a saving grace or not, but I I certainly know, I think, what that's like to be like, no, I want to do this no matter what. So the book is put together, it's very short, almost vignettes, with each has its own title, 
And there may be about three pages long at the most. Some of them are even just a couple of paragraphs on the page. I wonder how you put that together from conversations and from transcripts and how you chose which scene would appear when. It was kind of a long, messy process. And I did a lot of drafts. I did a lot of drafts, both of the individual vignettes or chapters or whatever you want to call them, as far as what would be in those particular sections, and then trying to decide which order they came in and putting them into the sections. And I worked on the floor of my office for a long time, and I would physically cut things up and move them around until it felt like I I had something that I liked. But the transcripts were huge and sprawling and I mean, you know, just the way that conversation is, it's, yeah, it sprawls. <laughs> so it was a long process. <laughs> Although also not that long, actually, in the scheme of things. I think I was, I got it done fairly quickly in terms of my own working speed, just because I think this was the thing that I was really focusing on. I'd love to hear you talk about these kind of like stories set off from each other with the titles or, you know, these kind of taking something that could have probably been, you know, just within as a novel, if it was a novel, as a single story, why kind of using these titles or making them miniatures? You know, I assume it's in part because you don't have to have connective tissue. And so it allows you more freedom in terms of how you move. But I would imagine as someone who works mostly in this form, that there are other more like personal idiosyncratic reasons you're drawn to it. So I'd love to just hear you talk about this kind of miniature form. I think it's just the form that feels most natural to me. And it also feels the most powerful to me. And I think I have a, you know, across all of my work, I have a very strong need to see if I can say what I want to say with as few words as possible. I feel like I I don't want to give a reader the chance to sort of look away. And I don't want to waste a reader's time. And I think that with this book in particular, the sections to me, they just felt like a good way to break up what were a lot of little stories that had been told to me. And then also, I just wanted the book to have this kind of speed and impact like a race would have. And one of the things that Sonia told me when we talked after I had showed her my draft, she was talking about that, like about the form. She was like, oh, I like, you know, all of the little stories. And she was like, it makes me think of how, you know, they say in horse racing that a horse race is like the most exciting three minutes of your life. And it was just so exciting to me when she said that because it felt like what I was trying to do formally in the book, but I maybe hadn't like fully connected it or articulated it in terms of a race at that point. And so it was a really great moment. <laughs> Did she have any reservations about you turning her stories into a book or also even just putting your name onto stories that she told? She from the beginning, just was, I mean, just very surprisingly open and generous about talking to me. When I first approached her, I 
she knew that I was a writer. And I said that, you know, I was interested in possibly writing about her. And she, you know, every time I was asking her and saying, like, is this okay? What do you think about this? Uh, Is it all right if I proceed with this? Like, and just, you know, every time she was like, yes, I'm excited, you know, or I'm happy that you're working on something. Yeah, to me, there was never a, a reservation. And then as far as my name on the book, it definitely is a book that I wrote. I think that maybe there might be the conception that this is a book that was just sort of lifted from transcripts, but that's very much not the case. It's definitely like a very crafted But I also, at the same time, you know, wanted it to read as though it could be a transcript or a conversation that you were having with someone. Her life really takes a turn in that she kind of reaches like the pinnacle of where she can go with horse training. And she's like grooming horses at the Kentucky Derby. And then she feels like, oh, this is kind of boring. And I miss the leaky roof circuit. And she quits. And then later she gets through a really unfortunate series of events. She becomes a prison guard. And I thought the two kind of institutions, the parallel of the institutions was really interesting as a, again, with her permissiveness and kind of pragmatism and like, you do what you got to do. I've seen it all. But I did note that, you know, it was in prisons where she sees the way people treat other people was the first time I had heard her say anything about kind of like becoming cold, just getting immune to it, shutting down, and the difference between, you know, all she saw with horses and how it seems like her work in prisons was by far worse. Yeah, absolutely. It seemed that way to me, too. And then she quit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about this latter stage in her life and how she eventually does leave the horse racing profession? I mean, I just thought that that was a a really interesting, you know, turn that happened in her life. And it felt to me like something that should be there in the book, like in tandem with this world of horse racing. I don't think I really want to try to talk too much about you know, what I think about the parallels between those two, but I would hope that they're fairly evident in the book as it is, yeah. Were you surprised that, you know, her life did seem to take just such a swing? Did it surprise you what happened to her? I guess a little bit, but just, I mean, I think that everybody's lives, if you've lived long enough, there's some very strange turns that happen. So it didn't seem that strange to me in that way that, you know, just here's someone who has spent her whole life doing this one thing and then she decides she's going to make a radical change and try something else. And the way that she kind of fell into it, it made sense to me in a way. Maybe just explain how she fell into it. She fell into it because she was dating a man who... They had been dating a while and he seemed fine, she said. And then he got violent and she wanted to break up with him and he wouldn't allow it and tried to kill her. And then was stalking her and her family for a while. And the police had him in their custody for a moment, but they let him go for whatever reason. 
And so she just felt like she was living in fear in her life for years. And so she decided to go into law enforcement because she felt like this was something that she wanted to get closer to that aspect of either the prison system or the criminal justice system or police, or she wanted to, part of it seemed like she wanted to have sort of like the power that, you know, maybe some people think that a correctional officer or a police officer or someone in this kind of position might have in regards to a criminal. But then, you know, she definitely (laughs) learned that that was not really, things were, were not quite how she had thought that they were going to be. One of the things, you know, once she gets there that and it hits you way before that too, is that she continuously occupies spaces that are completely antithetical or violent to her self as a person, as a woman, really often. And it struck me like over and over, like how one, like how brave she is in this book, or the character is, but also like just how brutal some of the world that she's in and has seen. I guess I wonder like how you thought about some of the more brutal aspects of the story, like the man that she dated who hunted her essentially, who threatened her animals, or how you dealt with the parts of that, of her story and transcribing it and turning it into your own work. I mean, I think anytime, you know, you hear of, something or happening to someone or something happens to you that is violent or brutal, it's shocking. And I think that I have a compulsion or a need to sort of pay attention to these things and to write about them, but to write about them in a way that is sort of as plain as possible so that, Mm -hmm. you know, the violence can really be seen for what it is and examined in a way. So she becomes a corrections officer, and I can't remember exactly where in the timeline is this, but she still has a horse who she had from when she was really young named Rowdy. And something about the human relationship to horses seems like very sentimental, and I don't know why to me it it makes me emotional. You know, this idea that, I don't know if it's because like there could be a connection, that there seems to be a strong connection. You know, there's like, there's a great story in here too about someone's pet crow or raven, you know, who's like, has become domesticated. I'm not sure if it's that like quality of domestication or what it is, but, you know, even towards the end of Rowdy's life, she's not been with the horse very much because she's been away, but they have such a strong bond. And, you know, yes, it has like this sentimental edge, but it also seems really profound. And I was wondering what you think about that relationship between humans and horses. I think that for many people, it's a very powerful relationship for whatever reason. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I think that humans have profound relationships with all sorts of animals, but there does seem to be something about horses that horses and people that, I mean, just for example, like at a lot of prisons throughout the United States, they have equine rehabilitation programs where these prisoners are working with horses and they're learning to care for them and how to be around them. And 
they've been shown to be really successful in sort of people who have committed like violent crimes. There's something, I don't know, without, you know, at the risk of sounding corny, I feel like there's something that's potentially sort of healing in that relationship. And I think a lot of it has to do with the size of a horse and the power of a horse, but also the fact that a horse is a prey animal and that horses are afraid and they spook very easily. And that's their instinct, you know, to run and to be afraid. And and I think that there's something about humans being able to learn how to put a horse at ease and to have them trust mm. them that it's just a really powerful dynamic. I was curious, you know, I feel like Sonia has had a really exceptional life. And I'm sure you've had this question before from your first book as well, but it, it also struck me that so much of life is in the telling, you know, and I wonder for you if you have this sense of people like, oh, if you could only tell everyone's story in the right way, everyone's story could be a version of this book. Or if you feel like, well, there are some people who have more interesting stories than others, just like kind of be honest. <laughs> um, she, she has an exceptional story. Not everyone has that level of exception in their lives. That's a really good question. And I feel like I'm going to say both. <laughs> I'm going to say both that, you know, she has had a really exceptional life. And so it's sort of maybe in that way, it's, it makes it a little easier to write about her in a way that is interesting and engaging and exciting. But I, I think I do basically think that everything and, you know, everyone's lives is as interesting depending on how you write about it. Thank you so much, Catherine, for speaking with us today. Thank you. That was Catherine Scanlon. Her new book is Kick the Latch. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.